Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll kind of review the first full team verses of Ephesians are, are one sentence. And some of the things that the Lord Jesus tells us here are just so remarkable. I mean, you, you just, it should blow your mind. It's been blowing my mind. You think about the implications here. How about verse three, which says that, that we have been blessed by God, the father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in union with Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does that mean? What is ev- every spiritual blessing? We're every one of them? Every one of them. I mean, that means that every present under the tree is for you. You know, what does that mean? Every every blessing, every blessing in the heavenlies is for us. About four, we've been chosen before the foundations of the world to be holy without blemish. Holy and without blemish. There you go. That's definitely going to be an improvement of where I'm at right now. How about uh, having decided in advance that he would, we would be adopted uh, through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, for the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously gave us in the beloved one. What does that mean? The pr- to be the praise of the glory of God's grace. I think about this like, Maybe in the the new heaven and the new earth, when you're walking down the street, angels will be pointing to you and go, praise God. Look at that. Look at that. Praise God. How about verse 7 says, in whom we uh, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. That word lavished, I mean, that's such a rich word, right? Like, what what does it mean to lavish? You know, like if you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you lavish on the peanut butter, I mean, that peanut butter is an inch thick on that sandwich. Oh, yeah, lavish. I mean, that's a great word. It has kind of a, you know, a romantic connotation. You lavish your love on somebody. Mm, Love you so much. Lavish. Having made, verse 9, made known to us the sacred secret of a will according to his good pleasure that he planned beforehand in him with a view towards the administration of the fullness of times to unite under one head all things in Christ, the things that are in heaven and things on earth in him. Unite all things at end times, like the fullness of times, like when it gets to the completion When you get to the very tip of the tail of the dog, when you get to that very end, he's going to unite all things in Christ, right? Because right now there's some division, right? Some division there as, you know, rebels. What does it say in Romans 8 about how the whole creation, all of it, the whole creation is in pain and travail, you know, like referring to like waiting birth pains, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. That's us. And again, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just chipping away at an iceberg here on some of these, the the implications of these statements. You know, you can go sit out under a tree somewhere and think about this and grow a beard like Marion while you're doing it. They're so deep. Verse 12 says, to the end that that we who had already hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. There it is, that praise of glory. Again, angel sees you walking down the street. Praise God. And this is wonderful. Uh, Verse 13, in whom you also, when you heard the message of truth, the good news of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were, were, past tense, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Sealed, big stamp, boom, put on it. Sealed, hold. 
put a big stamp right here. Hold for pickup, right? Because somebody's coming to pick us up, get us out of here. Now, under this prayer right here that comes after this great sentence is all about us receiving wisdom and knowledge about what God has, has accomplished for us. Let's read it real quick. But because of this, I also, after hearing of your trust in the Lord Jesus and love that you have for all the holy ones, do not stop giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And, I, you know, this is revelation, right? This is the word of God, the word of the Lord Jesus. So this is like God's prayer. This is Jesus's prayer for us, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, not the knowledge of who's going to win the Derby or what the score is going to be at the Super Bowl, right? This is knowledge of him. Because the primary purpose of Holy Spirit is to make us more Christ-like. God does that through giving us understanding of what he's done for us and who we are in the Lord Jesus, building up our faith that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of God, he will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, that's, that's an interesting little verse there. The eyes of your heart have been enlightened, right? At some point, at some point in our lives, we had to make a start on this thing. Our eyes had to, of our heart, you know, where the believing occurs, had to be opened, at least to the point that we believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead to receive that gifting of Holy Spirit in the first place. So this is, you know, written to somebody who already has at least had that much going on so that you will know what is the hope to which he has called you, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance amongst the holy ones, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, which is according to the working of his mighty strength. So the hope, the inheritance, and the power. There's an inheritance coming, right? We understand a little bit about the hope. We understand that the Lord's coming back to gather us together. We're getting a new body. We're going to be with him in eternity, perfect fellowship. And I, I mean, beyond that, we read some of the stuff in the word. It's going to be paradise, paradise on earth. But I mean, you know, we got eternity to spend with the Lord. And I guarantee you, we're not going to be bored. <laughs> it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. What kind of things do you think we're going to get up to? Do you, do you sit around and think about that? Great big universe out there. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what the capabilities of the new body is going to be, but I'm pretty sure Space travel isn't off the, the table, hanging out with otters and swimming with dolphins, hugging bears, you know, praising God in the heavenly host like you read in Revelation, all these amazing things. And then what about the inheritance? What 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 does that mean? The inheritance. What you read of something that's like five crowns, right? The five rewards, that's part of the inheritance. An inheritance is something that's, you know, kind of earned. Uh, let me put it this way. I mean, if you're a if you're an estranged son, if you know, I've got a brother that's estranged from his father, and I don't think he's getting a lot in the inheritance there because, you know, but I mean, think about that. There's, there's more, there's more, there's an inheritance. There's not just this great gift of Holy Spirit and the new body, promise of eternal life, but there's an inheritance. I mean, we need to, need to sit and think about that. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe? which is according. Now, when you read according in the word, we're going to set a standard, okay? According, here's, here's, here's the standard, okay? What kind of power are we talking about? According to the working of his mighty strength, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from among the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every ruler and authority and power and those having dominion, not just above, far above, far above all these guys. So all the wicked, evil rulers of this world, with all their exerted power, Jesus sits far above them. God took Jesus from the grave, dead as a doornail, right? No, you know, just his human part dead. Uh-uh, no. Jesus was dead, dead, and God raised him out from the grave, but he didn't just raise him out from the grave. He raised him all the way out from the grave, all the way up to far above every authority, dominion, power, set him as the head of the church, the head of the body of Christ. 
There's only one other who is above Jesus, and that is the Heavenly Father, right? Just like Joseph was elevated from being the slave in the dungeon, waiting for execution, to the right hand of Pharaoh, had the signet, had the robe. Only Pharaoh had authority over Joseph in Egypt. Similarly, you know, that's a foreshadowing of where Jesus sits right now, at the right hand of God, with the right hand of power. That's the power that's working in us right now. Verse 22, and he put all things uh, in subjection under his feet and appointed him as head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. You know, generally speaking, the body ends at the feet. And under the feet of Jesus, which is his body, is everything in subjection. Everything is in subjection. So even if you're the tip of the toenail of the little toe in the body of Christ, everything is in subjection beneath you, because that is the power of God at work that works in you. It has taken not just Jesus, but the entire body of Christ out from the grave and raised it all the way to this high, holy, glorious position. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, why why aren't we seeing that? Why aren't we seeing this in, in this power in operation right now in my life? Why isn't my life so much better than it is if I'm sitting with all this power? Well, you know, we're talking about things to come. I mean, it's a, it's a reality that is, is, is so certain that this is going to come to pass that God is speaking about it in a past tense. It's a figure called the prophetic perfect, and it's all through the Word of God. This is why you can read in the Word of God that you are saved, past tense, you're being saved, present tense, and you will be saved, future tense. It's an accomplished reality because Jesus literally, literally sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly places right now. That's an accomplished reality. That actually happened, right? Jesus got up from the dead on the third day, 50 days later, ascended to heaven, or actually 40 days later, ascended to heaven. 50 days later, we received the gift of Holy Spirit. That's an accomplished reality. But the spiritual reality is that we are his body. So if Jesus is sitting in the right hand of God, we're sitting there too. It's just a future event. And that's something that we can take great comfort in because there is nothing that the devil can do. No enemy of God can do anything about this accomplished reality and the coming implications of it, the coming consequences. I was thinking about that word consequence today, con, with. In, in Spanish, Latin, con means with, with sequence, consequences, the with sequence of what's going to happen because this happened, this sequence of events is going to happen with it eventually. So when Jesus got up from the dead, we got up with him. That's a consequence. When Jesus ascended up into heaven, we ascended up into heaven with him. That's a consequence. Jesus got a new body. We're getting a new body. You know, what does it say about our union with Christ in the word? That we were baptized with him, that we were circumcised with him, that we suffered with him, that we died with him, we were crucified with him that we were raised with him because he's our representative, right? He's the representative of mankind. And we're all human beings. We're all human beings. It's like a class action suit. You know, you get one one plaintiff comes in representing all these different people in the class, you know, all these other people that took that dumb drug that made you so sick. And the judge finds in favor of that plaintiff and the whole class receives the benefit of that. Well, that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Our representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, won that decision over the adversary, and we're all benefiting from it. It's a fantastic reality. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, and you, and you, and you, and it connects. It's a word that connects. It doesn't say but, it doesn't separate doesn't set in contrast, it's and, it connects. And you, when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you once walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And I think a lot of us were talking about that in our prayers today. We see this so clearly, right? This spirit that is at work, just manipulating this world, manipulating people. We all walked according to that spirit at one point. 
verse 3, among whom we also all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest of humankind. That's a bad place to be, ladies and gentlemen. That's a bad place to be. And that's where we were at, every last one of us. That's where everybody in this world was or is at. They need a deliverer. We need a deliverer because this situation is absolutely hopeless as far as human power is concerned. How do you, how do you deliver yourself from the very culture that you're living in? You know, the influences of it are so pervasive and so in many ways unavoidable. My wife was telling me today about a young lady who was into witchcraft and she got into witchcraft because she was so into Beyonce. And I don't know if you've ever heard any of these interviews that Beyonce gives, but Beyonce talks about when she performs, she literally becomes, she says she literally becomes possessed. This woman recognizes that she becomes possessed when she performs. And it, it's, there's nothing covert about her performances, about the, the, the wicked spiritual influences in her. It's very overt, the glorification of that, all that is evil and wicked. It's, 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 it's absolutely shocking, actually. And this woman, you know, got delivered from it. How did she get delivered from it? Jesus, because Jesus came into her life, because somebody had the courage to tell her about Jesus. Somehow, somewhere, the Lord got to her, you know? And maybe it wasn't getting knocked off your horse on the road to Damascus. Maybe it was because 15 years ago, one of you guys dropped the name of Jesus in her lap and walked away. You never know, but we just keep planting seeds, right? We just keep planting seeds because that seed, that watering, that planting, God can give the increase with. Verse 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead due to our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead. What can a dead man do? Nothing. You're dead. It's all about what God did. God did this. By grace, you have been saved. You're dead. Can't possibly be by works. Dead men don't work. They just decay. That's all they do and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Accomplished reality, yet to be seen, sure, absolutely, prophetic, perfect, but it's going to happen, right? Ephesians, First Thessalonians 4, there's going to be a raising up, literally, look at verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he could show the immeasurable riches of his grace by his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches of his kindness. Do you think the Father isn't going to shower us with love? I mean, what, is, what does that mean? I can't wait to find out. I can't wait to get there. And this is, this is the kind of joy of the hope. I mean, hold this hope tight to your chest, folks. Think about what it means. We should be dancing on cloud nine, man. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through trust. This is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Right? No boasting here. Nothing I've done. All I did was just believe. That's all I did. Verse 10, for we are his handiwork. We're his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Remember I said that the gift, the, the gift of Holy Spirit, its primary job is to make us more like Christ. The handiwork of God makes us more like Christ. The more like Christ we, we become, the more good works we do. You know, and, and what are the good works? Well, certainly it's praying and studying the word. It's reaching out to people. It's giving. It's loving, loving people with the love of God. All of this comes from a uh, comprehension of what we have in Christ Jesus, this union that we have, this incredible accomplishment of what God has done. You know, this, this day and time, this uh, season, we see Jesus as the babe in the manger. And he wasn't this superhuman God man. It's, it's a baby. 
a baby with all the potential that every human being as a baby has to do good and also to do evil. Jesus started as a baby, but so did Hitler, right? So did Stalin. All the potential, all the, all the, the possibilities, all the temptations. Jesus was tempted in all things, like as we are, yet without sins. And he grows up and, and grows strong in spirit and in, and in the favor of people, learns the word, suffers. I mean, we're pretty sure that he went through the death of his father, Joseph, who you know he loved. He must have loved Joseph, had to suffer through that, had to suffer through, you know, trying to deal with the traditions and the the false doctrines of his day and time, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are teaching him, the scribes and the lawyers, I mean, they're way off beam on a lot of this stuff. And again, he's not this superhuman being. He's a man. He's a human being like you and me, yet without sin. Didn't have sin nature. Okay, yeah, I agree. He didn't have that sin nature. Didn't have that thing pushing him to rebellion all the time. Thank God. But neither did Adam. So, you know, it's not like it was this huge, massive uh, advantage. And, you know, at age 29, 30, he gets baptized, receives that full measure of spirit, goes off into the desert, is tempted by the devil directly. None of us have gone through that. And how does he respond? 40 days in the desert, no food, no water. I mean, talk about a test of faith. It is written. That's how he responds. It is written. It is written. It is written. I mean, what kind of training did he have to put himself through? What kind of spiritual discipline? And then he begins his ministry, and we we read about the the stuff that he has to deal with, not just external stuff, but the internal stuff, too. I mean, he's got 12 guys that are his chosen apostles, and one of them betrays him. You don't think that wasn't hurtful? Got to deal with his mom and his brother, half-brothers and sisters. Got to deal with the rejection in, in Nazareth, his hometown. You know, then he's got all the political and religious persecution that's going on. On top of that, the pressure of being the Messiah. And again, not a superhuman. There, Jesus was tempted. That means that there was the possibility of him blowing it at any moment. You know, and we go get, get through his ministry and we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he goes off to pray, knowing that within the next, within hours, he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to... He's going to have to suffer the most excruciating torture, 40 hours of that, humiliation, degradation, physical abuse, and then the crucifixion, which, ladies and gentlemen, is, is one of the most horrible ways you can imagine to die. And he says, you know, he's sweating blood. Literally, the pressure is so great. And But he says, not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. And then he goes out and he faces the mob of the, the soldiers, the temple guards and the religious zealots. I mean, the same spirit that we see, you know, on TV in Gaza and, and you know, in Iran and, and in the streets, you know, these religious zealots. This is the same kind of spirit that comes at Jesus. And they say, you know, who, who he says, who do you seek? And he says, Jesus, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am, knocks them right on their butts. But he lets them take him, lets them, lets them crucify him, trusts God, trusts God. And every one of us knows how far away from that kind of trust we are. But we keep working. We keep working to honor this incredible Lord, to understand what it is that he has accomplished. Because if the story stopped right there, Jesus would just have been another cult leader, like the David Koresh's and the... Uh, Jim Mansons and the Jim Jones of this world, who a thousand years from now will be forgotten in history. But it doesn't end there because three days later, Jesus gets up from the dead. We ask ourselves, how did he, how did he do that? How did he go through all that? How did he face every temptation and have the answer? How could he, he face all that pressure and be have his attention divided between the woman touching the hem of his garment and the, the guy whose servant is, is dying and, and the throng of the crowd and still hear the voice of God. How did he do that? It's a good question. The question is, how do we do this? How do we get this word of God so in our brain that we can do stuff like that? Well, big part of the answer is turn off the TV, 
Turn off the Facebook. Get your head in the word. Get your head in the word. Get the word in your head. Sit down and think about what these words on the page mean. What are the implications that we are the handiwork of God created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance so that we should walk in them? The good news is part of the hope, part of the hope is that one day we will know even as we are known. So you will understand it one day. We think about what happened in Ephesus, uh, and you can go back and read that in the book of Acts, how Paul was kicked out of the synagogue once again. And uh, Saul found himself a um, school, you know, a school where they would teach the aristocracy and the, the rich kids of the, of the town. They got this kind of education, and he went in there. Don't know how he managed to find worm his way in there, but he did, and um, had 12 men that, that he, he just taught. And um, from there, from that start, the word of God moved all across Asia Minor, Turkey, Greece, all down through the Mediterranean, East Mediterranean Peninsula. He he taught that word of God and it, and it moved. And we've heard a lot. Um, there's some anticipation about this upcoming year, understandably. But first of all, you know, our involvement in the political things of this world are not to overlord and to, you know, we're not going to wave flags and fire guns and put boots on the neck of people. That's what the government does. And that's not Jesus's way. Jesus is an under shepherder. You know, there is a time coming when he will come back as the overlord um, and we'll have a participation in that. Our enemies will be destroyed. Um, the enemies of God will be destroyed because that's the only way you can deal with evil. But at this point in time, we're here as we're on a search and rescue mission, right? And we have people out there, I know, in our paths that we're going to come across who want to hear the word of God. Maybe they don't even know they want to hear the word of God, but they're looking for something. They're looking for truth because this world cannot give them the satisfaction that they're looking for, the fulfillment that they're looking for, because man has a God-shaped hole in him that only the Lord Jesus Christ can fill. And um, that's our job. And no matter what happens in this country or around the world, you know, the situation that Paul was facing, the Roman Empire and the cult of Caesar, which was a religious cult, had its foot on the throat of that time and culture to the point that, well, they were crucifying people. I mean, you know, that crucifixion was the punishment that was being meted out. And it was the Romans, the Roman punishment that Jesus was subjected to. And, you know, we do not have to uh, allow the intimidation of the world to affect us. We can continue to love on people no matter where they're at. And, you know, the other thing to think about is where Paul was at before he was converted. You know, he was a murderous, you know, he had the the Allah Akbar spirit. You know, he was out there freaking shaking his saber and hauling Christians off to prison. And Jesus showed up in his life and things changed radically. So, you know, don't let them intimidate you. Don't let the news bother you. Don't, you know, I I know it's tough when you go to the grocery store and you spend a hundred bucks on $20 worth of groceries. Bothers me every time. But, you know, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. And God will provide. When we go into Ephesians and continue through Ephesians, we see that these the power and authority that is available to us, the accomplishment of Jesus Christ that already have been accomplished in our lives. I mean, it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. And and we could spend a lifetime and probably should. And maybe you want a New Year's resolution. Here's a New Year's resolution. Spend the rest of your life with Ephesians thinking. And we have kind of dug into this section between the two great prayers uh, that are in the doctrinal section of Ephesians, the end of Ephesians 1, all the way through to the offend. Uh, the end of Ephesians 3, these are two, like a section that's kind of bookmarked between these two great prayers. Um, for me, many, many years were spent just kind of going through 
that first sentence and thinking about that first great sentence in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. And that is just fantastic stuff in there and all accomplished realities. And then there's a great prayer in the end of Ephesians that, that prays for spiritual wisdom and, and our eyes to be enlightened so that we can know, know what, what God has done here to understand it. And, uh, and then we continue after that into Ephesians chapter two. And we made it, uh, through Ephesians chapter two last week up until, uh, two verse 11. And I thought this was so appropriate that we would read this verse, the first verse here on New Year's Eve, because the first two words here are therefore remember and, you know, New Year's, New Year's Day, New Year's resolutions, all that stuff is fantastic. But one of the most amazing things that we can do as brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ is therefore remember what he has done for us. I mean, what has Jesus done for us? Go back and read Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You know, we are now seated in the heavenlies. That's an absolute reality that will come to pass. Nothing can stop that. We are members of the family of God. We have all spiritual blessings. We are to be to the praise of his glory. He is the full payment. We have been given the spirit that can never be removed. It's a guarantee of our inheritance. Guarantee. You think God puts a stamp of guarantee on something that doesn't seal it? Absolutely, it seals it. In fact, we are sealed with spirit. And it's very important that we remember this stuff. You know, I, I, I talked about we don't overlord other people, but there is something that we do overlord, and that is the flesh. We overlord the flesh. We do that in our own minds. We refuse to think what the world thinks. We refuse to allow the flesh to dictate to us. We are no longer slaves to the flesh. We mortify the flesh. That's a great word. Blow it to smithereens, right? It is crucified with Christ. The flesh has no say in our lives anymore. Remember that. Therefore, remember that at one time you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by those who are called circumcision, which is done in the flesh by human hands, remember that at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants based on the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Once again, we have a then and now kind of situation here in Ephesians. And uh, we, there's that section of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a then and now situation. And here we are again, a then and now situation. And um, we have the two groups of people, the Jew, the Israelite, and the Gentile. And uh, any Israelites here? Anybody from one of the 12 tribes? Any, no, no. I mean, even if you were, it, you, you would have a very difficult time tracing your lineage back through to the 12 tribes to, you know, it's become so muddled and mixed. And uh, the, what happened to Judaism and the Jewish religion, it's a very, very far cry from the Judaism that we read about in um, the Old Testament. I mean, even by the time of Jesus, it had become filled with all kinds of paganism and traditions and, you know, the, the laws of men, the Levites and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So uh, even those that were circumcised and considered them Selves, you know, the holders of the covenant of God by that time were way kind of out on in left field. However, you know, they, I would compare it maybe to our Catholic, Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. They, they, they held the name of Yahweh, El Shaddai. They knew the commandments of God, the law of Moses, uh, but their traditions and the, the, the oral law and the Talmud and all this stuff that was just piled on top of it kind of made things very, very murky for them. Um, uh, they did have the promise of the Messiah, though, and uh, that is the great line that we see, the great red thread that we see all through the Bible, the coming Messiah, you know, and, and that's a, a great battle to look at in the Old Testament 
Um, I think the cat and mouse game between the devil and the heavenly father as the heavenly father works to bring into physical being the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the devil's attempts to wipe that bloodline out. And uh, this is why bloodlines in the Old Testament are so important, because in the Old Testament, God made a promise to Abraham, out of your seed will come the promised seed. And out of Abraham, you get Isaac, and out of Isaac, Jacob, and out of Jacob, the 12 tribes, and out of the 12 tribes come this son of David, this son of man, Jesus Christ. And if the adversary had destroyed that bloodline, that promise would have been effectively destroyed. Um, and, and it got close. It got real close. I mean, there's uh, a record in, I think it's in Kings, uh, and I think the kid's name is Ichabod, maybe, the last lineage kid of crippled feet of David, came down to one kid. One crippled kid. That's how close the devil came. But sorry, pal, no cigar. All right. So remember that we were excluded from that. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who at one time were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, the partition between us. And this partition, this dividing wall is talking about in the, the temple. You know, uh, it's not the, the division between the Holy of Holies and the holy place, that curtain that tore when Jesus Christ gave up his last breath. It's the partition between the sons of Israel and everybody else, the Gentiles. It's, it was a wall, and it was, it was called the court of the Gentiles, and everybody was allowed to be in there. If you were like, you know, like the, the centurion that we read about in um, Acts chapter 10, who was a, a proselyte, who was a convert to Judaism, um, he was allowed in that court of Gentiles. But there was a sign up there. There was a, a gate and there was a sign in front of that gate. And it basically said, if you ain't a Jew, you cannot come in here under pain of death. That's that line that Jesus Christ has torn down, one of them anyway. And he did that through his work. I mean, I, he's created one new man out of two. That's nothing that any of you and I have done. This is all Jesus Christ's accomplishment. And we can sit there and scratch our head and go, how, how did this happen? Well, you know, Jesus Christ did it. God, through Jesus Christ, did it. It's not any of our works. This is the privileged position that we enjoy living in this day and time, in this age of grace. There were many, many Gentiles, I'm sure, who wanted to see that wall torn down and wanted to be a full part of the nation of Israel. You know, think about some of them. Think about Naaman, the, the, the general from Syria who uh, Elijah healed. You know, he, he probably wanted to get fully invested in the great coming Messiah's promise. I mean, there are, there are hundreds uh, in the word of God. And of course, I can't think of anybody else right now, but I'm sure you can, you know, and I, it's a great study. Go into the word and take a look at that, who these people are. Let's go back to uh, 14. For he is our peace who made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, the partition between us. He made the hostility. That's a good word. Hostility. Hostile. The law consisting of commands expressed in regulations of no effect by his flesh, so that in himself he could create one new man from the two groups, thus making peace. And so he could re reconcile both groups to God in one body by means of the cross, having put to death the hostility by it. Why is the law hostile to man? Well, because it's a standard that man cannot achieve for righteousness. And it never was meant to be a standard for righteousness. You know, the, the standard has always been faith, trust. And that was what Abraham initiated. The law was set in as a boundary, maybe, you know, it says in Galatians, it was there as a, as a way for people to 
kind of stay within bounds. It was called a uh, pedagogue, uh, like a babysitter, if you want. This idea, it's a Greek idea where you, you had a slave, somebody who would keep an eye on your kids for you, get you to and get them to and from school, keep them on track. But it was never meant for righteousness. Uh, and it was never a standard that anybody was able to achieve except for one man, right? And that was the man that didn't have sin nature, Jesus Christ. But Moses never fulfilled the law. Abraham never fulfilled the law. David never fulfilled the law. Gideon, Samson, none of the people of the 12 tribes of Israel. And actually, the law became more and more hostile as more and more was piled upon it by the religious leaders of the day and time. But Jesus Christ put that hostility to death because he fulfilled the law. Now, he didn't abolish it in the sense that, you know, the law, all the commandments of the law are, you know, like the Ten Commandments. It's it's still a good idea not to murder people, right? Still a good idea not to commit adultery. And we see those commandments continue. We'll see them later on in Ephesians. You know, don't steal is still a command of this day and time. Jesus fulfilled the law, the commandments that were there about, you know, the sacrifice and the righteousness that needed to be achieved. I think Paul says, you know, we don't abolish the law. We fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled it for us. He put to death the hostility that was in the law. You know, when God looked at mankind and saw that he could not fulfill the law, he couldn't do like the Ten Commandments, like, you know, number one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, anybody here achieved that one yet? Yeah, okay. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. The hostility there that man could not fulfill that law, Jesus, by being the perfect fulfillment of the law as the perfect sacrifice, has fulfilled it, has crucified that hostility because our identification in Christ His crucifixion was our crucifixion. His sacrifice was our sacrifice. His righteousness is now our righteousness. The wall is broken down. It's gone. We're no longer two people, those trying to fulfill the law and those who don't give a hoot about it, never even heard of it. Gone, all gone. And what we have now is a new man created in Christ Jesus. And none of us had any part in this work. This is all Jesus. This is all God. Remember that. Verse 17 says, And when he came, he proclaimed good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Because through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Access by one spirit to the Father. It's not that the Jews get one spirit and The Gentiles got another spirit. It's one spirit. In fact, when the apostle Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, this is that which is recorded in the book of Joel. And you go to Joel and you you, you read what what uh, Peter is quoting there. Peter is quoting a passage that prophesies of the spirit that will be given on the great day of resurrection that all the Jews, all the Israelites knew about. They knew that there was going to be this spirit poured out on mankind. Remember Elijah's dry bones, the valley of dry bones, the bones come back to life and spirit is poured out on them. Peter said that that prophesied spirit is the spirit that you see now in these men who are speaking in tongues, the mighty works of God. The spirit that we have received today, right now, is the same spirit that was prophesied of in the Old Testament. And this is the incredible, absolutely amazing gift of Holy Spirit that we have today. This is the same spirit that you will have for all eternity. It's not like, you know, should we, the Lord tarry and we we fall asleep, that we wake up and there's a new spirit. No, it's going to be exactly the same spirit. Holy Spirit is Holy Spirit. If The Lord returns right now, and we get our new bodies. The spirit that we have then will be the same spirit that we have now. We have this spirit in earthen vessels, right? These are earthen vessels. 
But the spirit that we have, oh my goodness, mind blown anybody? Think about that. The power, you know, one of the things that I've been going through uh, recently, thinking about reading through this is like, man, I'm living so far under par. It's like, how much more, how much more available is there for me to be doing? I think we all go through that. Verse 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the holy ones and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you also are being built together by means of the Spirit into, catch this now, a dwelling place of God. I Is that breathtaking? We are a dwelling place of God. This whole section has references to the old temple, you know, the, the temple that Solomon built, David prepared for, Solomon built, got torn down in the, the Babylonian, Ephesian, Syrian invasion, was rebuilt, got torn down again, was rebuilt again. This massive con- uh, complex, multiple acres, 30 years to build, you know, in Jesus's time, Herod's temple, the temple that the apostles, uh, the, the, the disciples said, Lord, look at, look at these, this incredible building. And Jesus said, you know, I'll tell you, tear, tear building down and it'll be done three days. I'll rebuild it. Of course, referring to his um, referring to his resurrection. But I mean, this this was a, a center of Jewish life, this temple. I think, what is it? Three times a year, every Jew was required to make a pilgrimage to to that temple, um, the center of life. And, and, and you had these the outer court of the of the Gentiles and then you had the inner court of the of the Jews but then you also had the Holy of Holies right where where no nobody got to go except for the high priest once a year with blood for a sacrifice and that is where God was was believed to dwell between the angels over the tabernacle uh, sorry, over the Ark of the Covenant, where Moses' rod and the, the tablets were and the manna, all that stuff. Of course, that was all lost long, long before Jesus' time. But that was the Holy of Holies. It was there that um, John's father, whose name I forget, went in and saw the angel. You know, and they used to tie a rope around the priest because if he messed up, they were worried that he'd drop dead got, and they'd have to have, pull him out because nobody could go in there and get that body out. That's how inaccessible that Holy of Holies was. And the incredible symbolism of the temple curtain being ripped in half when Jesus gave up his last breath and said it is, is finished is echoed here in, this ver- in these verses. It was torn wide open. The law is fulfilled. The temple is no longer needed. Because we are the dwelling place of God. We are. We're a building that is being built with every member that comes to the body of Christ. It's a new stone in that temple, this dwelling place of God. And not only that, but go back and, and, and read here with me. It says, you're no longer strangers and, and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the holy ones and members of the household of God. I mean, that's great. You're, you're part of that family, his household, right? Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone. That, that's the point where everything is measured off of. It's the most important stone that is laid. You know, they didn't have modern surveying equipment. They had to set this stone and measure everything off of it. And if it was just the tiniest part out, the rest of that building would be completely kittywampus. You know, a millimeter here represents meters 50 feet down the road, right? Where everything gets out. That's how you end up with like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, stuff like that, right? To Jesus Christ, his life is the cornerstone. It sets the standard by which we measure everything. And the apostles and the prophets in whom the whole building being fitted together grows 
into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. That fitting together, fitting together, it's an interesting word. It, so the, a stone gets chosen, right? And it's rough hewn out in the quarry and it's brought to the building site where the temple is. And then it's fitted in. And if you look at ancient buildings, there isn't cement and concrete, right? Those, those stones are fitted in. They, the rough edges have to be chipped away so that it fits perfectly in its spot. And it's a process. It takes time. You got to knock the rough edges off, folks. You got to get rid of the crap that won't let you fit in properly. It's not an instantaneous bam. Oh, member of Christ, boom, perfectly fitting into the body, boom. Instantly your ministry is in full, full force and fulfillment. There's stuff that has to get knocked off. You need to get sh- put into shape. You need to get into shape. I love that, right? God and the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to knock you into shape. And this can be a rather traumatic sometimes experience. You know, you got to get some stuff lopped off so that you fit into this proper place so that your the, the people next to you, everything fits together tight, you know? Don't want anything wampus. And this alludes to, of course, the process of renewing the mind, of putting on the mind of Christ, of counting sin dead, of no longer being a slave to sin, of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, right? We have this spirit, but it is in an earthen vessel. And it is the most worthy, honorable, noble, profitable occupation that any man or woman can have. To work with the Lord Jesus and your heavenly Father to be transformed into the image of Christ. To be fitted into this dwelling place of God, this building that is God's home, his household, his people. This is our great occupation, and it is an eternal endeavor, an endeavor that we're working on now that has eternal ramifications, eternal rewards, and will have an eternal fulfillment. So why do we waste our time with anything else? It's a good question. In whom you also are being built together by means of the Spirit into the dwelling place of God. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner, for the sake of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, surely you have heard of the administration of the grace of God that was given to me for you, and that the sacred secret was made known to me by revelation, as I have already written about briefly. Surely you've heard of that. Paul is incredulous. Surely, surely you've heard of it. You haven't heard about this? And the sad truth is, ladies and gentlemen, lots of people, including a majority of our brothers and sisters in Christ, have not heard about this. They haven't heard. They don't know. Go to a church. See who teaches Ephesians, Romans, Thessalonians. Not a lot. They're in the Gospels. They're in Revelation. Surely you've heard. The tone of, he's incredulous. What do you mean you haven't heard? Of course you, you haven't heard. Well, how are they going to hear unless somebody speaks? And how are they going to speak unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel of good news? That's you and me, ladies and gentlemen. If they're going to hear, if they're going to hear about this incredible age of grace that we are living in in this day and time, we're the ones that need to tell them. And it is my great pleasure and honor to be a part of a ministry that does teach these incredible truths. You know, I learned them because somewhere out there, a remnant of Christianity remembered this. You heard it because somewhere, somebody said to you, surely you've heard about this in one form or the other. And here we are today declaring this truth to each other. Our website is up declaring this truth. And you're in your communities, in your homes, with your families, at your work, And I pray to God that you are declaring this incredible truth, this age of grace that we live in. I want to close out in Romans chapter 10. It says, brothers and sisters, my heart desire and request to God concerning them, and this is concerning Israel, who was an Israelite, is for their salvation. For I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, 
but not based on the knowledge of the truth. How true is that for so many people that we come across? You know, we, we, we see the uh, zeal of the followers of Islam, right? But their knowledge is not according for the, to the truth. We could use some of their zeal. They could use all of our truth. Since they are disregarding the righteousness that comes from God and are seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the fulfillment of the law with the results that now there is righteousness for everyone who believes. This is past tense for us, right? We have believed. We have received the righteousness. We're endeavoring to live it, to live rightly. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. The person who does these commandments will live by them, every last one of them. But the righteousness that is based on truth speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is in order to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from among the dead. Christ has already been there. You don't need to go to these places. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message about trust that we are proclaiming, because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from among the dead, you will be saved. For a person believes with his their heart, resulting in righteousness, and a person confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This chapter goes on to talk about how there was a remnant of Israel left in the days of Elijah, 7,000 men. I don't know if you remember about this, but Elijah got very depressed. And God said, don't worry about it. Here's a snack. Have a nap. And then when he woke up, which that's a great lesson, by the way, snacking a nap solves a lot of problems. Uh, And uh, (laughs) he gets up and God says to him, I have a remnant left in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal, 7,000. And I thought about that. How many people, how many people were there in Israel at that time? It had to have been a lot. I mean, we're talking right after the golden age, right after the age of Solomon. So, you know, 7,000 is what, 7% of 100,000? It's 0.7% of a million. It's 0.007% of 10 million. That's a minuscule amount of people who wanted to know the truth. I don't think anything's really changed. We live in a nation of about 350 million, and we see very few right now that want to know the truth, so it would seem. But guys, we cannot give up. Go have a snack and take a nap and get out there and preach the truth. Because surely these people need to know about this great sacred secret that we have the privilege of knowing. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus Christ for your amazing grace and your love, for your peace and the mercy that you have shed in our lives, that we get to know what we know. And more than know what we know, that we have believed on the name of Jesus Christ and confessed with our mouths that he is Lord, and we now are clothed in his righteousness. His accomplishments are our accomplishments. Our identity, our union with him can never be removed, can never be changed, because you have sealed us with Holy Spirit. And that sealing is tighter than the sealing of the door on Noah's Ark. Ain't nothing getting in, ain't nobody getting out. So, Father, we thank you for helping us endure in this difficult time, which is nothing new. I mean, I'm sure the times of pull were awful, but you give us the endurance. You give us the patience. You give us the long suffering. You give us meekness and humility. Most of all, Father, give us love, love for our enemies, love for our neighbors, love for each other, love for you and for our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, love that will override the fear and the concerns and anxiety of the world, love that will take us to the highest mountain or the lowest valley to preach the name 
of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this in his wonderful and powerful name. Amen.